Keeping up on Seattle-area politics is tough. Who has time to sit through a three-hour council meeting and sort out which decisions will affect you most? Please vote aye. 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 Well, what if getting caught up on current events was as simple as getting a cup of coffee with some City Hall insiders who know which stories are hot and which are not? Welcome to Seattle News, Views, and Brews. And here we go with Seattle News, Views, and Brews, where big stories are always percolating. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on the Seattle Channel. The views here expressed are my own. Now, normally, we're joined by Seattle City Council Insights, Kevin Schofield. He's not able to join me this week, so pinch hitting. David Croman, the city reporter from Crosca. David, good to have you. Good to be here. Also, a big thanks, of course, to City Grind Espresso. As always, the owners, John and Charlie, thank you so much. You know them as the coffee cart on the first floor of City Hall. They have the hallowed position as our background noise sponsor. Always good to hear them. All right, so let's go right here, right now. David, I want to start talking about public safety because we had a series of shootings in Seattle uh, over the mid to end of January period here. The council I know is going to be looking at this closely over the next few weeks. You, just before we're taping this podcast here, were talking with some of the different public officials involved, the mayor, the chief of police. What's going on here? I think there's a new focus on public safety at after what was a horrifying uh, string of events. Yeah, I mean, I think the mayor and the city council and the police chief are going to be under a lot of pressure to respond to the the shooting that occurred which was which was horrific mm-hmm. um, and you know the the question will be sort of what can they do that they are not already trying to do because um, specifically in this area the city council budgeted um, budgeted enough for them to do emphasis patrols in this area so they're and and they have been doing them pretty consistently for pretty much six months at this point. And so there's already an increased police presence in that neighborhood. So. Right. We're talking about the Westlake area here. Right. Right. In the Westlake, Westlake downtown corridor area. Yeah. yeah. And so the blade, as some people call it. In yeah, yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, they, they pointed out that um, because of that, the, the police were very quick to respond to the shooting. I think right. the first officer was there in 15 seconds. I heard that like too. That. I heard that too. Um, but um, because they're going to have to do something, it'll be interesting to see how, how do you how do you put more emphasis on an area that already is being yeah. emphasized? Yeah. Um, the mayor today emphasized, or, um, talked a lot about sort of more diversion programs and outreach to youth because they're connecting this to some gang violence yes. in the city. Um, there are some suspects in custody, which is a good sign. Here. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I think also what we'll see is probably, you know, I know that there's been a lot of undercover work happening in that area. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if they sort of maybe dial back on the undercover work and put more officers in uniform just to just as a sort of visible symbol. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then they're also going to uh, put a mobile precinct there, so a van right. that the um, officers can work out of. Right. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting. I think there will be a debate around whether or not that is going to be effective or it's going to be enough, but I think that is what we're going to see. It's a start. And when you talk about three shootings, basically, in downtown Seattle over the span of 24 hours, I know that in past, in recent years, Seattle has, has seen it such that those type of shooting statistics have actually gone down. When something like this happens in such a, uh, so many shootings in so, such a close proximity to each other in terms of distance and time, I think people get a little worried about that kind of thing. Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably right. And and the mayor referred to the, the fact that 
sometimes these things happen in clusters and you sort of see um, increases and decreases and it's always unsettling whenever, you know, you're right, sort of generally the city has actually seen a decrease in crime and and violent crime, but, um, you know, this particular area though has seen a bit of an uptick. Yeah. Um, Not necessarily in overall crime, but in person crime. Yep. Crimes against people. Right, right. um, you know, I mean, she, you know, she also did talk about, you know, this is a big city, and no matter what you do, there's mm-hmm. going to be things like this that happen every now and yeah. then, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's going to be a balancing act between investing resources that are going to legitimately make a difference, but also investing, I, I think some of this is going to be symbolic, frankly, which yeah. is um, putting putting resources uh, there that simply just make people feel better. Yeah. And, you know, again, that's... That's can, a part of it, too. You can debate whether yeah. or not that's that's a proper thing to be doing, mm-hmm. but I, I think that um, it's not a surprising thing. To no, doing. no, certainly we'll be watching what's happening with Lisa Herbold's Public Safety Committee going forward here. I know the mayor is going to be proposing a few things, and we'll see how that committee reacts there. Thanks for breaking that down with me. But David, I wanted to focus on a piece you had very recently about affordable housing. A lot of people applying for this, but not that many spots available. You focused on an area in the Central District, and this was really an interesting thing, this whole neighborhood preference piece they're pushing for. Can you explain where you were looking, what was going on here, what this whole neighborhood preference thing is all about? Yeah, so this story actually started from uh, my commute. I go by this building mm-hmm. that I'd seen under construction, and I knew it was an affordable housing um, building, and I had seen them put up a four-lease sign, okay. and then like a day or two later, that was gone. So Dr- Drive-by journalism. Right. Okay. So I yeah. figured that it had, um, you know, like most affordable housing in Seattle, I figured it had gotten a lot of interest. And mm-hmm. so I asked them about it, and it, they'd gotten about 850 applications for 74 spots. And and this these apartments weren't even necessarily, um, you know, so the most affordable. These were just for um, people who might be in jobs like, you know, a teacher or sure. something like that. So they are working mm-hmm. professionals, but they're just not making enough to afford to live in Seattle. Which Happens is a, a lot. Yeah. Increasingly common story. Um, yeah. But yeah, the unique thing about this is that um, they are prior- they are prioritizing about half of those 74 apartments for people who used to live in the neighborhood. So it's mm-hmm. a neighborhood preference. And so yeah. for half of the people who are going to get this apartment, yeah. they're going to have to prove that they lived in the central district at some point before the year 2000. With the letters or addresses? How, how do you do that? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That's actually yeah. a good question. Yeah. I didn't ask yeah. them about that. But yeah, um, I, yeah I assume something like yeah. that or property yeah. records. Sure, or sure. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting because it's sort of the most um, direct effort we've seen to combat gentrification and mm-hmm. displacement in that uh, what was a historically majority black neighborhood, and it, right. it, it is no longer. Right, um, right. So, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. It's one of those situations, I know the city council has actually talked about this for a while. Any sort of legal challenges you, you could foresee from this whole idea of neighborhood preference? You know, why is that person getting the right. spot and not me? How do you look at that? Yeah, I mean, I'm. I, I don't. I can't say for certain. Yeah. Not being a lawyer, but we're um, a litigious society. <laughs> right. I know. Um, yeah. But you know what? What they're saying is that they're not. Um, they're not discriminating or excluding anybody based on a protected class. So mm-hmm. it's not about race. It's not mm-hmm. about age. It's. Um, it's simply about location. And and because half of the apartments are um, open lottery. Yes. Yes. Um, th- they feel pretty confident that they can mm. do this. Um, Portland has done this. Um, in northeast portland um and it's so yeah it's a a new thing for seattle i would be surprised if anybody sued necessarily over this it Uh, is interesting to see it build though what was just a concept a little while ago now we're actually going to see people placed i mean this is a very physical we want to avoid gentrification this is something where you can actually do that i mean a very physical way it sounds like right and 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 in the past we you know we've Seattle has added a lot of affordable housing, and so theoretically that can sort of 
indirectly um, help that, but we've never seen new buildings um, go so directly after people who mm-hmm. literally used to live in that neighborhood and now maybe want to come back. You know, before it was um, creating new opportunities for people um, so that they wouldn't be pushed out. But right. um, this is interesting that, you know, you could have theoretically 30, you know, almost 40 people, 40 families, yes. households right. move back into the area. That's a big deal because that discussion about housing and affordable housing is at the center of the homelessness debate, certainly in our area here, as much as you can try to work on social services, etc., you need places for people that are more affordable. I had just heard from a few homelessness advocates that there is a new report from McKenzie just now coming out, talking a lot more about this, about, hey, if you need to have uh, more housing for people who are making in between that 0% and 30% of the average median income here, you're going to have to make an investment of $450 million for the next 10 years in a row. I mean, some big, big numbers we're talking about here. I know this feels like a drop in the bucket, and, and I don't know if you see it that way, but it seems like if we can make some more investments like this as a city, if Seattle can do that, King County can do that, maybe this is one of those answers they can look at when we look at this holistic picture of homelessness. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's true. Um, you know, the, the tough part of you know thinking about a project like this, which is targeting, so the, you know, these are a two-bedroom in this building is going to rent for $1,100. Yeah. So that's not cheap necessarily, no, no. but it is uh, much more affordable than market rate at this point. And so yeah. when you look at a place like that, what's sort of hard is, um, you know, it is sort of a zero-sum game for all these affordable housing um, developments between city and state and county and then, you know, low-income housing tax credits. Um these affordable buildings are competing for those same resources as those um, zero to thirty percent yeah. median income, and so the the problem when you need to start providing affordable housing to people who are working full time jobs, it, it makes it harder to really focus on some of that chronic homelessness, and yeah. so that kind of in a nutshell sums up yeah. um, how you can see rising rents sort of indirectly in some ways, in some ways directly yes. impact. Um, you know, some of the, the street homelessness that we yeah, see. Yeah, Great piece, David. Thanks for breaking that down. All right. We're going to move on to Now Hear This. We're talking about some of the things our local leaders have been working on recently in the past couple weeks here. Council Member Sawant just held a special meeting on the issue of banning winter evictions. She's trying to do this, ban those evictions from November 1st to March 31st. This is something that would start up next year, potentially. Here's what she had to say about it at a recent meeting. This is a question of humanity. It's a, it's a, humane, it's a humane law to make sure that people, especially with families, as Nancy Rankin said, um, the most people... The people who are most impacted are women-led families with children. So it's about protecting the most vulnerable people. All right, David. So Councilmember Sawant has been very active at the start of the new year here, talking about winter evictions specifically with a with a packed meeting here in terms of talking about what she wants to do with this uh, with this whole ban on winter evictions here. This seems like something where there's going to be a natural pushback from landlords, whatever else. Break down this issue for me. Is this something that she's going to be able to push through? Do you have any feel for this? I don't know. I mean, I I think you're right that um, it would certainly face legal challenges. Um, And so, you know, if the goal is to get this in place before some of the worst winter months, um, I imagine that would sort of delay it. Uh, Sure. It's modeled loosely off of um, some laws in France. Yes. I don't, I don't know the sort of uh, detailed nuance of what yeah. those laws are, but I do sure. understand that there's some difference, yep. some more caveats involved in those French laws. Right, um, right, right. And so um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I, th- I would be, I think probably what could happen is 
this conversation will move forward the sort of broader conversation around evictions. And um, I know that a lot of people would prefer, rather than putting any moratoriums on when you can evict someone, putting more resources towards yeah. um, preventing evictions in the first place. Yeah. So um, the, carrot, the carrot rather than the stick, I guess, in this yeah, case. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's, there, and there's already a program, I, I can't remember its exact name, but it's mm-hmm. funded in large part by actually the Seattle Mariners yeah, and yeah, yeah. United Way. Right. Um, where basically it's, you know, it's pretty simple. It's a, a lot of people get evicted for what are pretty small amounts of money, mm-hmm. $100, $200, sometimes even less than that. Uh, yeah. And so these funds are basically, you know, they figure it's cheaper to pay the $200 yeah. than it is to deal with what happens, the repercussions of when somebody actually gets evicted. And so yeah. um, whether or not, I, I would be a little bit surprised if we actually see an evictions ban in winter months, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't at all be surprised if um, this conversation that, you know, I think to her credit, Councilmember Swant has started leads to something like that, where maybe they put more resources towards preventing eviction. Very true. And I think this is really right out of her playbook. She asks for the moon, mm-hmm. $15 minimum wage, and then it starts with 12 bucks, but a huge move uh, right. within that space. So I really think that this conversation at the city level, for sure, I know Nicole Macri, one of our local representatives here at the state level, is working on a good cause mm-hmm. eviction law uh, mm-hmm. there too. So it really feels like trying to I guess overall, strengthen that kind of renter's bill of rights that mm-hmm. uh, Councilmember Swan's been talking about over the mm-hmm. past several years, really. Right, and yeah, I mean, and this is, as you sort of pointed out, this is where Councilmember Swan is genuinely um, effective and mm-hmm. pretty good at what she does, yeah. which is um, she's an organizer. She, uh, it, she starts with an idea and says what, you know, sort of builds energy around. Mm-hmm. Um, what is essentially what she would like to see her end goal. And I think oftentimes an end goal that her colleagues can support, but maybe they don't totally support the means to get there. Mm -hmm. But because she's built up this momentum around it, um, you know, there, there gets, there becomes movement in city council. Um, And so, yeah, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's an interesting, it's a tactic that frustrates people, but, um, can can actually produce results, even if they're not exactly the results that Councilmember Swan wanted in the first place. That's fair. And just moving on a little bit, we touched on this in our podcast a little bit earlier too. Councilmember Swan is also talking about expanding uh, tiny home villages, having more of them in the city of Seattle, as many as 40 of them, uh, which I don't even know if there are 40 sites that would exist in the city of Seattle for that to happen. But let's talk about this a little bit because I think there's some urgency to this because the current ordinance authorizing encampment permits expires at the end of March of this year. So I think Councilmember Swan is trying to craft some legislation. I'm not going to say that's her strong suit in terms of putting uh, those actual pieces of legislation together. But I think in starting this movement, she's gone one direction. And there's been a little pushback already, I think, from the council on this. Are we going to see 40 new tent cities, new encampments uh, around around the city? What's your feel on this, David? Yeah, well, and it wouldn't be tent cities. It would be You're tiny, right. tiny home yes. um, villages. Which... Although that, there's some devil in the details. Right. I, I, she hasn't done a great job in terms of laying out what's a tent city, what's a right. tiny, tiny home village. Well, I can say fairly confidently that they would probably not create 40 new tent cities. Okay. But whether or not they um, create space for more um, tiny home villages, um, you know, again... Is it going to be 40? If, and as you mentioned, are there even 40 places to put it? I'm not yeah. so sure, but um, it does sort of create um, a momentum around this thing that I think that there's genuine, you know, um, Councilmember Sally Bagshaw, before she left, yes. had always been very vocally in support of tiny home villages. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not like Sawant is off on her own in supporting no. um, these alternatives, which are, you know, 
fairly unanimously viewed as yeah. positive alternatives They're to They're effective. Living. In terms of getting people into more permanent housing, they have a much higher success rate than any of the other models at work. Right. And, yeah. you know, federally, they're still seen as technically homeless. That's and right. So that is, that is sort of a sticking point, um, which is that you're literally, you know, by definition, not solving the problem by mm-hmm. doing it. But um, it, you are getting people into situations that... Um, are preferable to living, um, you know, off of Dearborn Street or, right. you know, in a, in a right. tent somewhere. Right. And I think that's the, the big piece here. The, the data really shows that the tiny home villages are outperforming the enhanced shelters that the city has in terms of moving, moving people into permanent housing. The tent encampments really not doing that. So we'll have to see what happens with the details here. But this is going to be heard in Councilmember Lewis's Select Committee on Homelessness. I think this is a big issue for him to tackle right out of the gate. I know he's capable to do it in terms of talking with him, but I'm wondering what that discussion is going to be like, how much Councilmember Swant's going to be in his ear, how much she's going to be guiding that discussion there. Do you have a feel for that, that, I don't know, power structure, I guess, on the council, how this goes forward? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, because Councilmember, well, Gonzalez, when she's back from parental leave, yep. will sort of have a lot of power in directing um, where these initiatives, which committees these initiatives go through. Yeah. It, it seems like for now it's in Councilmember Lewis's. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that it's his number one priority. Yeah. I think his priority is, and probably the priority of the rest of the council, is figuring out um, how to raise more money to build more affordable housing, not necessarily tiny home. And Which isn't to say that they don't support tiny home villages, right. but you do have a you know sort of limited capacity and limited political capital, and I think some of the new council members um, and some of the old council members at this point would probably prefer to spend that capital on figuring out where they're going to raise a fairly significant amount of new money in order to build uh, permanent supportive housing. Right. And I think that's always the struggle here when we talk about homelessness. There are some short-term solutions, safe parking zones, things like that for uh, people who are car camping essentially overnight. There are places like tiny home villages. There are tent encampments. The idea is to try to meet people wherever you can to make sure they are, quote unquote, off the streets. But off the streets and actually not being homeless, there's a fine line there. But it really feels like this is, one again, one of those city efforts where they've got to go down a bunch of different paths to try to meet people where they are, to try to at least get them into this pipeline of services, mm-hmm. the way I look at it. Yeah, and I think... Um I think also some of it's going to depend on what the legislature does this session. Right. Um, Governor Inslee has proposed dipping into the rainy day fund yep. to uh, and uh, to basically get people off of the streets. The yep. things he's proposing um, don't appear to be uh, to board, build new permanent supportive mm-hmm. housing. He's he's yep. just uh, pushing for efforts to get people so, to reduce the street homelessness. Um, yeah. I don't think I don't think anybody believes that um, the legislature has the sixty percent of votes that it needs to actually dip into the rainy day fund but it could something else could come out um, of that that and then if there's more money um towards those sort of you know temporary more preventative efforts then um maybe we'd see more momentum on some of the tiny home villages as well we will see yeah that's something that's going to be happening fast and furious at the uh, state level as we go through a short session here definitely keeping an eye on that and thanks david i'm going to move on to what's next David, I wanted to touch on a piece that you recently ran in CrossCut with regard to cash assistance for people on welfare. This is a really interesting dynamic that you've been talking about here. You highlighted a local family in talking about this. I don't know exactly how to put this, but essentially the need is still very high, but the amount of cash assistance our state is actually handing out 
is plummeting. Mm-hmm. What, what's going on here? So after the recession, um, you know, the legislature needed to cut $8 billion from its budget. And so it was looking all over the place for ways to do that. Um, and so welfare got on the chopping block. And specific, you know, welfare um, literally can sort of come in a lot of different forms. But the way people most think about it is, you know, monthly cash yeah. assistance. Yeah. Um, so what the legislature did in 2011 is, is basically passed a lot of policies that made it much easier to be removed from the program. Yes. Um, so you couldn't get extensions on your lifetime limit of five mm. years any longer. Um, if you sort of fell out of compliance with the program, the hook was a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few sort of more, you know, they required people to show up in person for orientations more yeah. often. Yeah, so yeah. all of these things combined, they, they never literally cut the budget exactly but mm-hmm. what they did is they just made it harder to be on the program yeah. and then therefore the caseloads fell and so the budget followed um, it's it's an interesting thing because you know a lot of states did that but Washington is one of few states that has not really done very much to restore those cuts um, and so uh, you know the, the most stunning statistic to me I think was that in 2006 um, some, I think 62 out of 100 families in poverty uh, we're accessing cash welfare benefits, okay. and now that number is down to 29 out of 100. So oh, it's wow. a it's a you know massive drop in the need versus the availability of cash welfare assistance. Wow, and where are these people going? I, I falling through the cracks, I guess, becoming homeless. What's right. going on? I mean, welfare it's not a lot of money, so it's never yeah. been um, it, it's it's never been necessarily the life saving hook. You you would need to combine it with other Absolutely. resources, yes, and food stamps and things mm-hmm. like that. But um, what it can do is cover sort of basic things like, um, the, so these are all families with children, you yep. know, diapers end yep. up costing a lot of money, mm-hmm. formula, things, you know, just things like that. Um, and so, the, you know, those families just don't have access to that anymore. And it's, it's difficult to, to find in the data a direct tie between cutting cash assistance and homelessness. Mm. You know, you don't, you don't, yeah. you'd have to ask everybody individually sure, sure, why sure. they're homeless yeah. and that's difficult. To I got do. you. But yeah. You know, if you talk to most people, they suspect that there is some correlation yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, something like, you know, a third of the people who are getting kicked off of um, welfare are being kicked off into homelessness. They are homeless at the time that they lose their benefits. And so um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a been a, it's a fairly um, stunning decrease from when uh, cash welfare, as we know it now, called the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, yeah. was Damn. passed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Passed in 1996. Washington was spending the equivalent of over $300 million of its own money on welfare. And last year it spent $13 million. So it's a wow. um, totally bottomed out. Yeah. I think there is some momentum in the legislature to change that, at least to restore those um, requirements for being on the program back mm-hmm. to pre 2011 levels. Sure. That will cost money. That'll cost, you know, because once you add to the caseload, you have to spend more. And so yeah. it's probably going to add another something like $30 million a year to wow. its budget in order to do that. But I think, I think we could see some some bipartisan motion towards that. We'll see what happens there because I know on a national level, President Trump is talking about trying to streamline the welfare system too mm-hmm. when he's not talking about impeachment or whatever mm-hmm. else. So, right. all right, need to wrap up here. David Croman has an excellent Twitter feed. If you're not following <laughs> it, you need to. Croman, David, uh, not only talking about the pieces he does for Crosscut, but uh, all sorts of things, including one that I thought was fascinating, David. You did a tiny bit of research, I believe, on this <laughs> one. But the, the Baseball Writers Hall of Fame came out with their votes. Derek Jeter's getting in on that first ballot. Larry Walker, glad Superman's in there after his 10th year. But we're talking about some votes here. 
Who is voting for these different? You get those one vote on the ballot. I thought uh, you made a great observation about one of the last names on the ballot. Yeah, JJ Putz. I don't. He was like go M's. Yeah, yeah, he was a pretty good closer for the Mariners for a couple of years. I mean, he was he was legitimately good. I think for like two years. I sure. Don't, I don't remember what happened to him after he left the Mariners, but. <laughs> You know, pretty good for two years is not Hall of Fame worthy. So I would be very curious to know who voted for J.J. Putz. Yeah, yeah. I don't uh, know if his mom's a baseball writer. That would be very interesting <laughs> yeah, exactly. to know. Uh, yeah, we had J.J. Putz with one vote. Raul Abanez, come on, give yeah. him more than one vote. I loved that guy. He was also, he was legitimately very good also. But, yeah. Um, I don't think he put up Hall of Fame numbers. Yeah. I think he yeah. had a few good all-star years. Yeah, that was yeah. About it. Cliff Lee, I'm not sure if that one's going to go anywhere either. Yeah. Again, not long enough of a career. I think I at guess. his best, Cliff Lee was could possibly be a Hall of Fame pitcher. But yeah. I think at his best was only maybe a couple years. Okay, okay. okay. We'll have to see. All right, yeah. all the observations you want and more. Thank you very much, David, for pinch hitting this week on Seattle News Views and Brews. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, great. Next time you want to know what's brewing in local politics, make sure you give us a listen. You can reach us via email at seattlenewsviewsandbrews at gmail.com. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And thanks so much for listening. Seattle News Views and Brews is an independent production of Calaman Media Services. Copyright 2020.